Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris. I'm Thomas Craft. And we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation. What's up, bosses? It is episode 57 of the Presentation Boss Podcast. And today we're doing another speech breakdown. No doubt one of your favorite types of episode on this show. Uh, This is where we grab a talk from somewhere on the internet. And today we're doing another TED talk let's be honest, because they're accessible uh, and we keep getting recommended them and we play that talk for you so you too can bask in the TED goodness, uh, but we'll hit the pause button a few times and make comments about anything noteworthy that's going on. This one's from TEDx Douglasville, which I'm not sure that Douglasville exists. To me, it sounds like a Sims town. I was making a Sims. (laughs) 2003 called Kate. They want their video game back. (laughs) (laughs) Like if I was playing Sims and my name was Douglas, like that's what I would call it, Douglasville. Was your Sims it doesn't sound Kateville? Of course it was. <laughs> it just doesn't sound real. <laughs> anyway, Sims aside, Douglasville does exist. It has a TEDx event. And today we're listening to Rory Vaden with his talk, How to Multiply Your Time, which as you may guess is on productivity, which is one of my favorite subjects. I love this talk and I'm really excited to do it today as a breakdown and share it with people. Let's do it. Okay. You may have thought that we started late, but it is ironic that the first speaker would be the author of the book, Procrastinate on Purpose. hate when we pause early, but I can't let this one slide. Go on. <laughs> Look, let's just make comment on this first line. Uh, evidently, this event has started late uh, and people don't like when events start late. Uh, however, he has, uh, in the moments before he's walked on stage, crafted that clever first line, which basically just calls out that they've started late, has a little bit of a humor point in there, which is quite nice. Just I think it could be worth acknowledging if any sort of event or meeting starts late. And the fact that he did that with humor, it's addressed. We can move on into the talk now. How is it that we have more tips and tricks, tools and technology, calendars and checklists than ever before, and yet we still always seem to be behind? How is it that we work longer hours? We're moving faster than we've ever moved in history, and yet we never seem to be caught up. How is it that we know more about time management today, and yet stress is at an all-time high? The reason why is because everything you know about time management is wrong. This hits me hard because I pride myself on how much I know about time management. So this has got me so intrigued because I am irritated and intrigued. It has got me so hard. I This is not the first time that I've watched this, but I remember watching this for the first time and just thinking I am absolutely making it to the end of this TED Talk, which is not common for me. I will often watch the first couple of minutes and leave, but I already knew at this point that I'd be watching the whole thing. About time management is wrong. I first started to realize this a couple years ago. It was early on a Saturday morning. I was at my business partner's house and I was picking him up for a very important international leader planning retreat. And uh, he has this two-year-old baby girl named Haven. 
And Haven is the sweetest little thing you can imagine. She has curly brown hair and these sweet, soft brown eyes. And we live in Nashville, so she has a little southern accent that's developing. And as I'm picking up Dustin and we're about to leave, Haven comes sprinting down the hallway. And she leaps and she latches on to Dustin's leg. And she says, Daddy, where are you going? And he looks down at her and he says, Oh, I'm sorry, baby Haven. Daddy actually has to go to work today. And she looks up at him and her eyes well up with tears. And she says, no, daddy, please, no work today. No work, daddy. And in that moment, I realized two things. The first is that I myself am not ready to have kids just yet. <laughs> the second is that even though everything that you've ever heard about time management is all logical. Tips and tricks, tools and technology, calendars and checklists, it's apps, it's all logic. What I realized in that moment from a two-year-old is that today time management is no longer just logical. Today, time management is emotional. Oh, Rory Vaden here is going for the feels, right? After that introduction where he launched a quite a few questions that I imagine relate to the target audience of this presentation quite well. He then did a little bit of a, uh, a tone shift there straight into that story. I think that story was told quite well. We had uh, the detail we needed to convey an upset daughter and a father on a Saturday morning. So immediately, I think this talk is off to quite an emotionally uh, grabbing sort of introduction. And that story is not a happy story, obviously, but he learns two things. So he says, I learned two things from this story. One was, and there was actually a humor point in there. It was a little purge to sort of, ah, this is okay. We've got um, a little bit of a mood lift. Uh, we know that we're in safe hands. We've got somebody who can recognize that what they've told us is a little bit darker, but can lift us up to probably now receive some information around this time management that he's already started talking about. Today, time management is emotional. And how our feelings of guilt and fear and worry and anxiety and frustration, those things dictate how we choose to spend our time as much as anything that's in our, in our calendar or on our to-do list. In fact, there is no such thing as time management. You can't manage time. Time continues on whether we like it or not. So there is no such thing as time management. Really, there is only self-management. Well, that was the first big realization that I had. In order for you to understand the second, I want to take you on a quick history of time management theory. And that really began in the late 50s and 60s. And it came during the Industrial Revolution. And, and early time management thought was all about, it was one dimensional. And it was all based on efficiency. And the idea with efficiency was that if we could develop tools and technology to help us do things faster, then theoretically that would give us more time. Well, there's nothing wrong with efficiency. All things being equal, efficiency is, is better. And yet, there is an unfortunate limitation to efficiency as a strategy for time management. And, and it's evidenced very well by the fact that we all carry around miniature computers in our pockets, and yet somehow we're still never caught up. I'm a little bit struck here, in a good way, I should say. I'm struck here by uh, his use of pace. We've got um, these sections that are building up. We've had more tools than ever. We've got a computer in our pockets and uh, that pace is really picking up. And there's a bit of a, just a pause and more deliberate delivery with the pertinent point that falls off the back of that sentence. Uh, the way he is varying his voice to drive that point and make it feel more important. 
because it contrasts with the rapid delivery lead up to the slower delivery of the important point. And yet somehow we're still never caught up. Well, in the late 80s, era two time management thinking emerged. I feel like it was pretty much single-handedly ushered in by the late, great Dr. Stephen Covey. And, and Dr. Covey introduced what we are referring to as two-dimensional thinking. He gave us something called the time management matrix, where the x-axis was urgency and the y-axis was importance. And the, the beauty about this was that it gave us a system for scoring our tasks. And then based on how they scored in these two areas, we could prioritize tasks one in front of the other. Prioritizing is all about focusing first on what matters most. And for the last 20 years, this has really been the pervasive mode of thinking as it relates to time management theory. And it's not that there's anything wrong with prioritizing. In fact, prioritizing is as valuable a skill today as it ever has been in history. And yet, even though we throw that word around like it's the end all be all to time management theory, right? We say, get your priorities in order. Or it's just, you don't have the right priorities. Well, unfortunately, maybe that's not really the case. Because there is a massive limitation to prioritizing that nobody ever talks about, and that is this. There's nothing about prioritizing that creates more time. All prioritizing does is take item number seven on your to-do list, and it bumps it up to number one, which is valuable in and of itself. But it doesn't do anything inherently to create more time, and it does nothing to help you accomplish the other items on your to-do list. I mean, if you think about efficiency, efficiency is kind of like running on a hamster wheel. And if you think of prioritizing, it's really about borrowing time, borrowing time from one activity to spend on another. It's kind of like juggling. And that really describes the way that we, we even talk about time. I'm, I'm juggling a lot, or I'm trying to balance a lot. And in that paradigm, there's only two strategies. One is to do things faster or to do more things. And that is what the world kind of feels like, right? How does it feel to know that really all we are is a bunch of juggling hamsters sprinting towards an inevitable crash landing? <laughs> you cannot solve today's time management problems with yesterday's time management thinking. What we've noticed is the emergence of a new type of thinker, somebody that we refer to as a multiplier. And multipliers use what we call three-dimensional thinking. While most people only make decisions based on urgency and importance, multipliers are making a third calculation which is based on significance. And if urgency is how soon does something matter, and importance is how much does it matter, then significance is how long is it going to matter. It's a completely different paradigm. It's, it's adding on to what is there. It's in with the old, but it's also in with the new. Because most of us, if you think about the, the modern day to-do list, which is one of the, the key strategies or tools that we have, we ask ourselves when we assemble our to-do list, we say, what's the most important thing I can do today? But that is not how multipliers think. Multipliers instead ask the question, what can I do today that would make tomorrow better? What can I do right now that would make the future better? They're making the significance calculation. See, while, when I say multiply your time, that might sound a little bit superfluous. It might sound like an over-exaggeration, but it really is not. 
Now, while it is true that we all have the same amount of time inside of one day, 24 hours, 1,440 minutes, 86,400 seconds. And there's nothing that any of us can do to create more time in one day. But that's exactly the problem. That type of thinking is the problem. What we have to do is break out of that paradigm and instead think about tomorrow. And that brings us to the premise for how you multiply time. The way that you multiply time is simple. You multiply your time by giving yourself the emotional permission to spend time on things today that give you more time tomorrow. That's the significance calculation. You multiply time by giving yourself the emotional permission to spend time on things today that create more time tomorrow. The significance calculation changes everything. He's layered two techniques on top of each other here, and it's been really, really effective. He's got a really pertinent point that he wants to make, and he's gone pace, 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 slow down for the important thing. Mm. And then he used a second technique, which is said the important thing, took a minute, said the important thing again. So he repeated it. And that combined with the pace made it so, so clear that that is the crux of what he's trying to say. And I think either of them would have been effective and the layering just makes it even more effective. Really, really cleverly done. So we're eight and a half minutes into this talk now. And I found myself sort of, uh, listening along and just kind of enjoying what he's saying. You know, I personally agree with these sort of concepts that he's bringing up about why time management maybe doesn't work or um, I've experienced a similar thing, even down to like, we can't use old techniques in the new world. Like that, that kind of just makes sense to me, uh, which kind of leaves this big gap around like, well, what does work then? Like, you know, if you're kind of reminding me of these things, what does work? And so he spent those eight minutes talking to me in that way. And now at the eight and a half minute mark, it's kind of this idea of, well, here's the, well, not the solution, but the new concept of multiply your time, do things today that give you more time tomorrow. It's just really working for me. Changes everything. The focus funnel is our attempt to create a visual depiction that codifies the thought process that multipliers go through in their head unconsciously when they are evaluating how to spend their time. It's why some people create extraordinary, explosive, exponential results, and other people seem to kind of just create linear traction. And it works like this. If your tasks all come into the top of the funnel, the first question a multiplier asks is, can I eliminate this? Is it even worth doing? It's another example how everything you know about time management is wrong, or at least that it has changed, because most of us use to-do lists, and multipliers realize that next-generation time management has much more to do with what you don't do than what you do do. It's, it time multipliers realize that perfection is achieved not only when nothing more can be added, but when nothing more can be taken away. It is the permission to ignore. Because anything that we say no to today creates more time for us tomorrow. The challenge emotionally is that we struggle with guilt and we struggle with wanting to say no, but really feeling like we have to say yes. And so we go through life trying to never say no. And in one of the interviews I conducted with the multiplier, they said something that changed my life. They said, Rory, it's futile to go through life trying to never say no. What you have to realize is that you are always saying no to something. Because anytime you say yes to one thing, you are simultaneously saying no to an infinite number of others. If you can't eliminate the task, the next question is, can I automate the task? Anything that I create a process for today saves me time tomorrow. 
It's like setting up online bill pay. I, I never have two hours in my day to set up online bill pay. I just don't have time. And if I had two hours in my day, I would never use it to set up online bill pay. But a multiplier realizes that if I save 30 minutes a month from paying my bills by setting up online bill pay, then it makes sense to invest those two hours because then after just four months time, I will have broken even on that investment. And every month thereafter, I will get something we call ROTI, return on time invested. I'm following this fairly well, but I think what I would really like here is maybe a simple visual to help make those numbers and maybe those blocks of time that he's talking about. I think if that was visual, would really help me with my comprehension because I'm kind of like it's simple maths, but I still have that cognitive work going on in the background. And I think just a small PowerPoint would really help here. Mm. I actually really like the example though, because I think that idea of like, how do I make more time for tomorrow? But understanding like online automatic bill paying, that's really quite tangible. That's something I can really easily relate to and see how that could save time after, I mean, you know, four months or in the long mm. run, right? It's a great example. Yeah. Mm. Really, really strong example return on time invested. Automation is to your time exactly what compounding interest is to your money. Just like compounding interest takes money and it makes money into more money, automation takes time and it makes it into more time. The way that wealthy people think about money is exactly the same way that multipliers think about time and they give themselves the permission to invest. I'm sorry, that's not how maths works. You can't equate money and time compounding. That's not possible. And I think it's really thrown me here because he's trying to equate it to money and money does literally compound each month. Whereas I cannot understand using the example that he's made, how time compounds. Like you're not going to make any more than 30 minutes a month by investing those two hours. Whereas if you compare it the same way that money works, it would be 30 minutes this month, 30 minutes the next month. And in a couple of years, you would end up saving four or five hours per month. And that's just not how time or money work. <laughs> so it's super thrown me. I mean, I've heard that time is money and it just seems like it's something that's kind of niggled you a little bit. Yeah, keep going about time and they give themselves the permission to invest, invest the time and energy to automate the process. If it can't be automated, then the, the next question is, can it be delegated? Can I teach someone else how to do this? I'm reminded of a time when I was seven years old and I'll never forget, I was in the car with my mom and I hit her with this question. I said, mom, do I have a dad? And as you might imagine, that was a pretty difficult question for a single mother to navigate with her seven-year-old. And it was the first time that my mom told me her life story. She was pregnant at 17, divorced a couple years later, pregnant again at 22, and then she was divorced from my biological father six months after I was born. So there she was, 22 years old, single mom, no high school education. And she explained to me, she said, Rory, I decided at that point that I would never have a man in my life because I haven't had good luck with men. And we may not have a lot, and we may not have a dad, but we're going to have love. And, and so we went back and forth for a little while, and I said, well, you know, Mom, I love our family. I really do. I love our family. But I think it would be really cool to have a dad. 
And so she said, well, I'll tell you what, honey, if, if you want a dad, then why don't you go out and find yourself a good dad? What kind of crap is that? <laughs> it just so happened that that was my first day at a new Shaolin Kung Fu Center. And I had been studying martial arts since I was five. And so they put me in this all adult school to be a little more advanced. And there was another gentleman who walked in. It was his first day also. But this guy was much older than me. He had long hair and tattoos all up and down his arm and leather jacket. And he came in on a motorcycle. And this guy was about the scariest dude you can imagine if you're seven years old. And he gets paired up as my sparring partner. His name was Kevin. He turned out to be pretty nice. Well, we started to advance through the belt levels together, and, and so Kevin started bringing me home from class every once in a while. Then before you know it, Kevin came over on the weekends, and we would, we would practice our forms. And then we caught a movie, and then bef before long, Mom came with us to the movies, and, and so it was the three of us that were going to movies together. And I'll never forget the first time the two of them went to a movie without me. <laughs> Well, as it turns out, Kevin and I tested for our black belts together on the same day when I was 10 years old. They got married two weeks later. A couple years after that, Kevin adopted me, and I changed my last name from Rory McLaughlin to Rory Vaden, and they have been married for 20 years ever since. And the point of that story is that you can delegate anything. Oh man, what a huge pattern break from this talk to drop in that story, which is almost just arguably unrelated. Like, why are we talking about your mother's love life all of a sudden in time management? Uh, but of course, that story was told as a vehicle to deliver a strong point. You can delegate anything. And obviously done in a humorous fashion, done in a little bit of storytelling, which storytelling connects us, all of that. I think a brilliantly placed story uh, and an interesting almost detour to deliver that point home. Yes, it was particularly well done. I was sitting here thinking, God, why did I like this talk again? This has nothing <laughs> to do with the subject. Then I was like, oh, yeah, brilliant. So I'm really pleased that he like pulled it right in and brought it back to the point. I think actually, yeah, that story is just long enough that we start questioning, like, why are we hearing about this? Yeah. But not so long that we're well confused. It's just like, why are we hearing about this? Ah, oh, that's Yeah, why. beautifully done. Yeah. But if you ask the average person, you said, are there things you know you could be delegating to somebody else? We would say yes. But then you say, well, why don't you train someone else to do it? And what most of us would say is we say, well, because they just can't do it as well as I can. And that may be true once, maybe twice. But it is only true absent the significance calculation. Because if you think longer term, you realize they'll be able to master the task just like you were. Significance changes everything. It's how you multiply your time. It's giving yourself the permission of imperfect for a little while. Because over time, they'll be able to figure it out. Now, if you can't eliminate, automate, or delegate a task, that task drops out the bottom of the funnel. And at that point, there's only one remaining question. And that question is, should I do this task now? Must it be done now? Or can it wait until later? If the task must be done now, then that's what we call concentrate. It's the permission to protect. All right, the permission to protect. It's, it's, it's all about focus and eliminating distractions. And honestly, there's nothing all that exciting or new there. However, if you ask the question, can this wait until later? And you decide that the answer is yes, then that's not eliminate, automate, or delegate. That is what we call procrastinate 
on purpose. Procrastinate on purpose. Now, you're not going to procrastinate on it forever. You're going to pop that activity back to the top of the funnel, at which point it will enter into a holding pattern where it will cycle through the focus funnel until inevitably, one day, eventually, one of the other four strategies will be executed on whatever that task is. And what you find is that if something can continually wait, often what happens is you eventually develop the courage to do what you should have done in the first place, which was eliminate it. Or you discover a system for how to automate it. Or someone rises up to the call of leadership. They rise up to the occasion, and it ends up being delegated. Or it ends up becoming something that is significant enough for you to spend your time on. Okay, I think it's worth saying at this point, he does have a PowerPoint visual for this process. It's kind of like a little bit of a flow chart. Task them in the top, eliminate, automate, delegate. If not, it goes to you, and then it can be done now or later. And if it's later, then it gets put back in the top. Like, man, that is, is hefty to explain. Um, but he does have the visual behind him, which I think if it doesn't make sense through this audio owner, like in the podcast, that visual uh, diagram, the little flow chart that he has will certainly help for the audience to understand that. And so in that regard, I think it's a good use of a slide to help to illustrate and give a visual for something that takes many, many words to explain. And anybody who in, in the audience who's not particularly visual or able to create that in their mind, be able to see it and understand that immediately. Or it ends up becoming something that is significant enough for you to spend your time on. A lot of people say, well, Rory, wait a minute. In the Take the Stairs book, right? In Take the Stairs, you said procrastination was the killer of all success. You said procrastination was the most expensive invisible cost in business today. You said procrastination is the foundation of all mediocrity. And now you're telling us to procrastinate on purpose? And yes, that is what I said, and it's exactly true how I said it. But there's a major distinction to realize, and that is there's a difference in procrastinating. There's a difference in waiting to do something that we know we should be doing that we don't feel like doing versus waiting to do something because we're deciding that now is not the right time. Waiting to do something that we know we should do but we don't feel like doing, that's procrastination. That's the killer of all success. But waiting to do something because we're deciding intentionally that now is not the right time, that isn't procrastination. That isn't the killer of success, that's a virtue. And it's an art form that the world really needs, which is patience. The patience to put off the insignificant things, like checking email 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You multiply your time by giving yourself the emotional permission to spend time on things today that create more time tomorrow. And regardless of your religious affiliation or your spiritual beliefs, hopefully you'll have an appreciation for the way that scripture says the world was created. And in Genesis, God has created this perfect world. And it says something amazing, that we're created in his image. And then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, he gives the first command to all of humanity. And what is that command? Thou shalt have no other gods before me? No. Is it love thy neighbor as thyself? No. God's first command to all of humanity, be fruitful and multiply. Thank you very much. Uh, there it is. Rory Vaden, How to Multiply Your Time, uh, TEDx Douglasville 2015. I hate that I'm going to say this, but I watched this talk a long time ago and I loved it and I watched it now and I just disagree with the content <laughs> and, I, and I don't love it anymore. And I think I actually need to take that out of the purpose of what we're here for today, which is to look at how he actually presents it, look at his presentation skills, not analyze his actual content 
because I disagree with his time management strategies for so many reasons that I'm not getting into today. But I think that's more of a statement on any given audience, like yourself as an audience, me as an audience, the, the audience as an audience, right? Which is yeah. you're convinced some of the people, some of the time. Um, it's not an unusual phenomenon for me as well, Kate, which is I listen to a talk at a different time and I feel completely differently about it or I hear something completely differently about it. So I think if there's any lesson here, it's that people's tastes change even over time as individuals. Yeah. Okay. So let's get back to the actual point then, which is looking at his presentation. Before we go into our two standard questions, what did you think of that ending? I would have changed it very slightly. How so? If I can paraphrase his ending, he said something something like, um, you know, you may have different affiliations, but the Bible says this uh, in chapter 1.23 or whichever it was, God handed down the first commandment. Now, I liked all of that. I think, I think in a talk, if you choose to quote from scripture without that little bit of disclaimer that uh, you may have different affiliations, you can start to put people offside who don't necessarily agree with the piece of text that you're about to read from. So I liked that. But then he had that weird moment where he said, was, it, was that first commandment this? No. Was the first commandment this? No. It was this one. And the one that he ended on was the point. That was really good. I don't know that it needed the two that it was not. That just felt like we were adding in extra stuff that wasn't needed. So I would have just tightened it up that little bit and got rid of like two or three sentences there. Yeah, right. I think if I was going to redo this ending, yeah, I disagree that it was effective giving that, uh, what did you call it, a disclaimer. Yeah, yeah. For want of a better word, yeah. I actually felt that it was more disrespectful. Because to me, I think it was saying a bit of like, regardless what you believe, the Bible's correct and it says this. Uh, yeah, I see, what, yeah. I see what you mean. So regardless of what you believe, this is the correct answer. And I just, I, mm. and it just rubs me up the wrong way, which is a completely personal opinion here. But I think of, as someone who doesn't affiliate with the Bible, it completely lost me. I think to be safe in any sort of general talk like this, avoiding topics like religion, politics, sex, things that people have uh, an opinion that if, you know, challenged would put them offside and maybe discount the rest of the talk. Like that, that would be the safe way to go. I think, um, especially as like, you know, we've had a different reaction to that ending. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that. Cause I, I think I would have liked the ending better if he just said, this is what I believe. And it's also in the Bible or this is in the Bible. And therefore that's what I believe. Mm. Yeah, I think I would have liked that to come from purely his perspective rather than saying to me, regardless of what you believe, the Bible is correct. Mm. I think that's what rubbed me up the wrong way. I think it was the disclaimer actually was what rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, I think if he just finished with like, here's a statement I believe in, I would have nodded along regardless of where he got it from. You know, it's his talk and it supports what he wants to say. All right, before we get too bogged down in, uh, (laughs) in the conclusion, what did you see in this presentation, Kate? A very comfortable presenter. He was beautiful on stage, just very comfortable in front of an audience. He didn't have a lot of movements. He had a PowerPoint, so he had that in his hands, the clicker. I don't think there was anything particularly of note. There was certainly nothing distracting at all from him physically. No, I mean, there there might be a comment here that he overall spoke pretty quickly, but I think to me, I was easy able to keep up with him and that reflected the passion that he had. His voice he used really, really well. He had a lot of variety in his pace and volume, which worked really well. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he was uh, quite articulate. And, and on that clicker, I noticed he was holding it 
And it was something I was brought up in our interview with Gerald Porsche about holding something actually gives you a good body shape. Um, and I noticed that I was really watching that uh, when he was holding that clicker yeah, right. sort of with both hands or he had both hands in front of his lower chest. It makes a good body shape. It yeah, genuinely looks pretty good. That's called your stomach. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What was, the, uh, what was the message that you got from this, Kate? Whether or not you agreed with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think for me the message was the bit that I pointed out about halfway through where he slowed down and repeated it, which was do the things today that will give you more time tomorrow. Yeah, I don't disagree at all. Some slight variation on the wording maybe, but I think the um, the visual that I talked about, that flow chart, really demonstrated exactly how you would go about that as well. Generally, I still do really like this talk, not as much as I liked it the first time, because I think maybe the first time I missed where he basically said that multiplying time will become exponential, the same as compound interest. And I just disagree because that's not how time works. And it's really niggled me. It's really got me. <laughs> Your head's all stuck on the compound thing at the moment, isn't it? Well, compound interest is exponential. <laughs> yep, yep, I'm done. Yeah, look, I really like the talk. I think there's a lot to take away that he does really well. And hey, bonus, if um, if you're nothing like Kate and think that the idea of multiplying your time uh, makes sense for you, then, then bonus. As always, there is a link down in the show notes, down in the text description under this podcast, where you can go and watch this TED Talk again, where you can actually see it as well as hear Rory Vaden with How to Multiply Your Time at TEDx Douglasville in 2015. We hope you've enjoyed this speech breakdown and stay safe out there. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes and other free resources. If you've seen a speech you'd like us to break down on the show, flick us the link at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend. Or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week. You've kind of just got your head stuck in the compound interest after that, haven't you, Kat? Well, I do, because compound <laughs> interest is exponential. Time cannot be exponential. I don't care how much automation you do of your internet banking. You're not getting exponential time. It's maths. <laughs> Compound interest is an exponential formula. I'm done.